Hello, and welcome to KXC again. My name is Anna. It's so good to have you here. And we are continuing our series on called Uprising, which is on prayer. And it's we get the title from this quote from a guy called Karl Barth, who's a theologian. He said, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world, meaning that there's stuff in this world which is disordered, which is wrong. And the primary route for a revelation is actually for the church through prayer. In the beginning of this series, we looked at, um, we had a video of, of kind of like different people's thoughts of what prayer meant to them from the church. And it was actually really profound, the responses. And, um, and one of them that really stood out to me was by, from our resident theologian, Dele, who said, besides loving God and loving others, prayer will be the most important thing I do on this earth. Boom. <clears throat> it won't be how competent we've been. It won't be how much stuff we've accrued. It won't be how blonde I've managed to make my hair without it falling out, which is my obsession at the moment. And it won't be the number of followers or friends I have on Facebook, on social media. But it'd be the most important thing we do on this earth will be our prayers. And having a revolutionary prayer life which disrupts the disorder of this world, that is what we're going after in this series. So um, the first week, Pete kind of did an overview of what um, the vision of the series would be and kind of breaking it down. And then last week, he spoke about devotional prayer life. And I encourage you, it was one of the most stunning talks I've ever heard on prayer. I encourage you to go and listen to it. It's really, really good. And he unpacked how we find ourselves in a place where we're disconnected from Jesus and how we might start to reorientate ourselves back to um, a life of devotional prayer with Jesus. And this week, we're going to be talking about how we move away from isolation towards a communal, communal life of prayer. And um, the title I was given was Praying as a Community in the Power of the Spirit. Now, when I got given this title, I'm just going to be really honest with you. Um, I kind of acted like a sulky teenager for a few reasons. The first reason is I always seem to get the community talks. Like of the 10 talks I've done at KXC, four of them have been on community. Now, there's, there's two reasons why the Peets would have asked me to do talks on community again and again. The first one is that I'm really good at community. And it's a case of like, you know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Um, all the second reason, and this is probably the one that's actually the reason, is that they often give talks to people who've like struggled with something, because then you're able to talk about the thing, like you, you can kind of talk about it with some kind of experience and depth, and it's probably that one, to be quite honest. Um, but the other reason that it kind of annoyed me was I was like, it just sounds so obscure, like what does that mean? Praying as a community in the power of the Spirit. But when I got over myself and I actually sat down with Jesus and thought about it, Actually, this whole kind of like vision kind of opened up to me of like, actually, imagine us as a community where we contended for one another in prayer, where we supported one another and um, through the highs and the lows and celebrated like in, in prayer um, each other's journeys. So, so much so that actually each other's stories became part of our story, that the victories that other people were experiencing were victories that we kind of share in because we're alongside them praying for them. And also allowing other people to actually contend for us. And it's something we can find really, really difficult. And I think part of this is actually us um, kind of recapturing a vision of what friendship can be. The art of friendship, crafting friendships which look tangibly different because they're based on prayer. And it sounds so simple, right? Contending for others in prayer and allowing people to contend for us. But the reality is, in this world, and sociologists will tell us, in the Western world, we've never been more disconnected and isolated than we are now. And if there's anything that we want to rise up against, it's actually this disorder of isolation. Because it's something deeply wrong in our society where, um, where the, the 
levels of anxiety are going up, the levels of depression are going up, and a lot of it is rooted in the fact that people are lonely, they are isolated, that they don't have anyone around them. And there was a study done into um, uh, like what were the causes of 400,000 deaths, and it said that 50% of them were related to loneliness, which makes loneliness more dangerous than obesity and smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And The Independent wrote this article, loneliness is on its way to becoming Britain's most lethal condition. It's such an issue for us that we've now got a minister of loneliness. And what's terrifying about loneliness is how far-reaching it is right across the generations. To the point they says that um, one in four of us are impacted by loneliness. And actually that statistic increases in a city like London. It is utterly lethal. And there's a few trends that we can track as we look at it. And one of them is actually for the elderly. That, um, and I know that, um, that we've got some stuff brewing around that with joy, etc., which is really exciting. But it says that two-fifths of people over the age of 75, which is almost four million people, said that the TV is their main source of company. That is deeply distressing and heartbreaking. And social media contributes to this. It's found that um, people who use social media more frequently have higher levels of perceived loneliness and isolation. And the most frequent users were three times as likely to feel isolated as the least frequent users. Which means these devices which are there to make us feel more connected, and that's the whole kind of point of them, are actually making us feel more and more disconnected and isolated. And it also impacts, um, the other trend is, is on gender. And it says that men tended to be more isolated than women. A study showed that 2.5 million, that's one in eight males, have no close friends. And 51% have two or fewer close friends. And when they asked them, like, how do you, do you actually feel lonely? Most men, there wasn't that much difference between men and women. And the reasons the authors believe there was such a discrepancy by the actual um, isolation compared to the perceived loneliness is because men are reluctant to admit how they, that they actually feel um, lonely for fear of vulnerability because they're not socialized to accept that they um, say something that makes them apparently appear weak. And I just can't even imagine what that would feel like. I find it hard enough to, 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 to reach out to people Imagine if I was like kind of, uh, and that had that layer on top of me that, you know, it's not manly to ask for help. It's not manly to show that you're weak. That is absolutely devastating. And then on top of this, like, we have this thing that actually when people um, experience loneliness, the very, like when you start to experience loneliness, you end up, end up becoming more self-centered and distant. And when you start to respond to people with this mindset, you, you end up provoking the rejection that you most fear. So it's this catch-22 of loneliness. To escape it, we need other people. But the emotion itself impairs us, our ability to attract them. Basically, when we start to feel lonely, we end up repelling people. And we end up in this kind of loop, this cycle, this self-fulfilling prophecy. And I want to suggest that two of the reasons that our culture is experiencing this in the Western world and, um, is, is due to um, individualism and consumerism. So individualism um, is basically where like a society will believe that the rights of the individual are the most important things. They're the primary things rather than the communal, the collective rights and the needs. So when decisions are made, it's actually based on what feels right for the individual as opposed to what is right for the whole community. And it leads to a kind of consumeristic culture where we end up being defined by the things that we need and the things that we take and the things that we consume. That's where we kind of get our identity from. 
And I think it's probably one of the reasons that we're in the climate chaos that we're actually in. It's because we're programmed to basically put our needs as the most important things, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. But when it's actually our lifestyles are damaging people that we can't see because they're much further away from us, or actually it's going to be the future generations, it's much easier to make decisions that are based on what my needs and what is right for me, as opposed to the collective whole, which is why we've got ourselves into such a situation. And tragically, this individualistic mindset moves us away from people. It moves us away from others. And that's the thing that is making us sick. And then the saddest thing is that um, because we are taught to think that independently, we're taught to think that being independent is the best thing, that you kind of should live on, like you should do it yourself, be strong enough and do it alone. It, ends, it stops us from asking help, which leads to further isolation when we hit troubles. And one of the things I find really sad is I think we as the church, generally in the West, are suffering from the same sickness. And we can't be good news to a culture which is suffering from isolation because we too are being dragged down in the same way. And when I was at um, college, um, I got to go to, to the Holy Land. And I, absolutely, I thought it was an incredible journey. If you, um, if you ever go there, I highly encourage you if you get the opportunity to go. Um, and I went to Jerusalem, and Pete Hughes has spoken about this before, but one of the things that stood out to me when I was there was the, the division. Like, you kind of had the checkpoints and the walls. It was just everywhere. The division was everywhere. And you felt it most acutely in the city of Jerusalem because it was just so kind of small and intense. And um, I want to caveat what I'm about to say by saying there's some amazing Christians doing some incredible reconciliation work. But what it, it broke my heart when I saw the church suffering from the same sickness as the city. Because there's a church in, um, in Jerusalem called the Holy Sepulchre. And it's basically the site where they believe that Jesus died and was buried in the tomb. And um, for years and years, this, this one church building has been divided up and fought over by the Christians. Because the different denominations are fighting over who owns which bit of the building. And the, the fight got so bad that they ended up having to give the keys away to a Muslim to look after it. Now, this is a city that is divided, and what it needs is a church not to partake in the, uh, the division, but actually be an uprising against that disorder and demonstrate a different way. And it grieved me to see that the church was infected with the same sickness of the city. But what I felt challenged with, um, with when I came home was like, starting to think about what are the infections that we are infected with? Where are we sick from the things that we've, kind of put, we've taken in from the culture and allowed it to, to enter in? And I think this is one of the areas, individualism and consumerism. I think we've bought into it, in our, our kind of our individualistic narrative in the gospel. I think the primary focus tends to be on the, my salvation as opposed to a collective creation salvation. And it's kind of a me, 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 I, 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 my, my, my. And we kind of use, um, speak about God as like kind of fulfilling my needs. And, and that's kind of been, tends to be the, the dominant discourse around our walk with Jesus. And I, genuinely, I'm not accusing anyone in this. Um, I'm saying that I'm suffering from exactly the same sickness. Like this morning when I was getting ready to preach, I was in worship and I was saying, hey, come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit. And I just felt God say to me, why are you asking for my spirit to come? And, um, my general, I, and I knew exactly why. I was like, because if your spirit comes, then it makes me look good. Like that's my, that was my approach to the, the spirit of God when I'm inviting this, the presence of God. God, would you turn up because then you make me look good. When the primary thing that we think about that's driving our behavior is our needs, we, then we're not going to be able to see clearly the people that are to the left and to the right of us. 
which leads to a consumeristic approach to community, where we end up coming to church and being a part of a community to take and to take and to consume. And Romans talks about the earth groaning, creation waiting in eager anticipation for the children of God to be revealed. And I think London is aching and it's groaning and it's longing for the church to rise up against the disorder and show them a different way. And I think the way we're going to do that is by recapturing a vision of love, not as the world paints it, but actually as Jesus has shown us what love actually looks like. Um, making an art out of friendship. So that's what we're going to be looking at a little bit today. And the reason I think it's so important is because this is one of the, our friendships, uh, the way in which we love one another is actually one of our main missional tools that Jesus gave us. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I've loved you and uh, you are to love one another, just as he has loved us, we are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one another. It's like the visible love of the church is going to be one of the distinctive markers of the followers of Jesus. And I, I experienced this um, when I had my ordination service a couple of weeks ago. Um, my sister came along. She doesn't go to church. And one of the things that she made a comment about um, after, after the service was the peace. And the peace was just kind of after I got ordained and just before we took communion. And it's where everyone gets up and kind of shakes hands and gives each other awkward hugs, etc. And what she was watching was she was watching um, Pete and John and their desperation to come and find me in the peace because, um, and then, then our embrace. And she just wanted to mention it. She was like, I, I was just like, almost like, you know, um, was really taken back by it. And the reason I think that she thought it was something so extraordinary was because there was something different of like, actually, they were celebrating with me because those two guys have walked with me on my journey towards ordination and they have prayed for me time and time again that actually me getting over the line to get ordained and actually getting there is in part because they have been there along the way praying for me and helping me along. So when they were embracing me, it was like it was kind of their victory as well. It was like, yes, we're here together. We've done it. And that's what she was seeing. And that is what the church, that's what the the culture is longing for to see those sort of relationships and it's important to say when as I'm talking about communal prayer that what I'm not saying is that um, it's not in opposition to what Pete James was speaking about last week our prayer lives can be deeply personal but I don't believe they should ever be individual because even when I'm praying alone even when I'm alone with Jesus and spending time with him like I'm not disconnected from the worldwide church and the story that we belong to and all the the generations through the ages it's like we're part of something so much bigger even when we are on our own and Bonhoeffer says it like this let him who cannot be alone beware of community And let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has profound pitfalls and perils. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the world, the void of words and feelings. And one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation and despair. He's ever the optimist, is our Bonhoeffer. But what he's basically saying is devotional prayer and communal prayer are not competing, but both are vital complementary components of a healthy prayer life of a church. So I'm going to look at contending for others and then allowing people to contend for us. So what do I mean when I'm talking about contending for others? Like, what does that actually mean in daily life? What does that look like? I just want to share two images, both from the life of Aaron And if you've done pattern training, you'll be familiar with us. Um, But you can read about Aaron's story in Exodus. Uh, He was a pretty crucial character in the story of Israel. He was the brother of Moses, the leader of Israel, and he was also the first high priest. 
And in Exodus 17, Moses, the leader of Israel, is standing on a mountain and looking over a valley. And in the valley, there's this, this, uh, this battle going on between the Amalekites and the Israelites. And whenever Moses has got his hands in the air, the Israelites are winning. They're winning the battle. But whenever his arms go down, they start to lose the battle. But obviously, with his arms in the air for so long, he starts to get tired and he starts to get weary. So what happens is Aaron and her come along and they put a rock beneath him and they hold up those arms. And like that's a mess, that's an image I want you to have when you're talking about contending for, uh, for each other in prayer. It's like when other people start to feel tired, when they're in a battle and they're facing stuff and they start to feel weary, that we would come alongside and say, I'm going to stand next to you. I'm going to hold your arms up. We're going to get through this. We're going to keep going. And like genuinely being alongside. And that's kind of what we do, like prayer ministry at the end. It's not as this like kind of added on extra thing. It's actually a vital part of what we do. It's like coming alongside one another, physically standing there and saying, I'm here, I'm with you, you're not alone. And it, we'd love to see that happening right, right across in our hubs, in pattern, in our ministries, in, like, even in non-centrally organized church events, like in everywhere, in homes and coffee shops, seeing one another, contending for one another in prayer when it gets weary. And just as a, a helpful little image, um, I just thought you'd show you this one, which is actually up in the corner up there. Um, and what I liked about this guy is the one on the right, his eyes look terrified. So when you're thinking about contending for one another in prayer, I want you to hold his face in your, your mind. But the second image that we have um, from Aaron is about his clothes. And he was a priest, and when he went about his priestly duties, he wore particular clothes. And um, I, again, I thought I'd Google an image to try to help you understand what his clothes looked like. And this was the first image that came up. Um, it's very jazzy. It's a very informative picture. However, I actually preferred this one. Um, it's my weird sense of humor. I just loved his, his expression. Um, so if you see this guy, he's got um, those, those kind of stones on the front of his breastplate, and he's got these two like kind of little things on his shoulders. And on the two on his shoulders, there were six names of the tribal Israel, tribes of Israel on one and six on the other. And each stone represented a tribe of Israel. And when he went walk into the tabernacle, which was the place of prayer, he would basically walk in carrying the names of um, the tribes of Israel on him and bringing the needs before of God before the people. It's essentially like um, a, a priestly tattoo. Like, you know, people have tattoos of like, you know, mom or dad or their kids' names on their arm because they want to remember them. Like, that's what he was doing. It's like, God, I'm remembering these people before you. And one of the things, again, is like when we're talking about contending for one another in prayer, it's not just about standing alongside each other in, in particular moments, but actually when they're not, um, when you're not with them, actually still saying, I'm going to fight for them. God, I'm going to bring this person before you in prayer. And what are you doing to, to keep your, to keep other people like in mind to pray for them? Like, are there names on your phone? Are there like alarms on your phone that you could set to remind you to pray for particular people who are going through stuff? You can get apps which remind you to pray for people. You can kind of put a whole list of names and then they kind of circulate them and kind of remind you to do it. Um, I have a, a whiteboard in my room with people's names on, which is very creepy for them when they come and see their the names on my, on my room. Like, anyway. um, so I want you to hold these pictures in your mind. And I want you to um, think of like a little bit about like how, even as I'm talking about how you might go about doing some of that stuff. But before we kind of go any um, further, I also want us to think about why we're not doing that. Because that all sounds wonderful. It's like, yes, I can kind of get on board with that. But why is it that we might not be doing that for one another? And I want to explore a little bit more about how individualism and consumerism is affecting the way in which we kind of manage and, and live in community. 
So I've talked a little bit about this before. Um, but basically, as human beings, we have a lot of needs. We need water, we need sleep, we need food. But, um, but most people, like there are five, five primary needs that are, are kind of driving their behavior. And, from, um, and most people, like it's kind of just two or three of them which will be stand out because we're all wired differently. And there'll be needs that are dr- driving your behavior. For, so for example, for me, um, the need for attention, the need for power, the need for success are things that um, I have and are driving my behavior. And, and none of these needs are necessarily bad, even though I'm going to make it sound bad in a minute. But they're not necessarily bad because actually they can produce really good behavior, but also they can choose produce some stuff which is like you know, not so healthy. And the biggest thing is like how aware of you of the needs that are driving you. Because particularly if we live, we're talking about living in an individualistic culture where actually our needs are the things that are driving our behavior, then it's really important we understand actually what are the needs that I'm like walking into a room carrying. So the first one, um, and you might, as I'm explaining them, you might be able to like diagnose or like, oh, that one's me, etc. And and in the last service, I could just tell for who was who because they just kept on people kept on smiling. So the first one, safety. So these people, like you'll walk into a room, and the primary thing you want to know is where are the exits, where are the risks, what's the strategy for getting out here if something goes wrong. And you can then apply that to relationships as well because you kind of get a little bit nervous if there's any risk involved. Actually, it then becomes about overly controlling the environment and also escaping. When I did the the training on this, um, uh, my friend said, oh, that's me. And she started describing when she went on holiday and she, her and her husband were staying in this hotel and they were both saying, oh, how lovely is our hotel? And he was saying all the things that he loved, the pool and the food, etc. And she said, oh yeah, do you know what I love about it? I love the balconies because if any terrorists come, I know how I can get out. And also there's lots of places to hide. And I was like, who thinks like that? That's crazy. Um, if you're, you're not crazy, if you're type one. Anyway, and then number two, um, attention. So these people, they're like walking into the room and they're looking at like, where is the most fun? And they're thinking about actually, where can I get attention? And you might do this in like in a few different ways. One of them is actually just by being loud and being the center of attention. But equally, the other way is actually um, by withdrawing and actually kind of being like a bit of a, a victim because you know that if you withdraw, you're going to get some kind of attention. And for these people, it's actually like any attention is good. Even bad attention is good attention. Um, number three, power. So these people um, fear basically being controlled and being manipulated. So a way of getting away from that is actually to control and to um, assert kind of power in a room. And um, yeah. Number four, approval. Um, I don't understand this one, so I'm going to try and explain it um, hopefully right and then look to the type fours in the room and they can tell me whether I'm doing it right or not. Um, so these te- people tend to be people that kind of, um, they want the approval of others. And they're, therefore, they kind of like hold in the emotions, which they don't think are very like good emotions to show. So they kind of repress their emotion, anger, they will rep- repress that. And it looks like um, you and you want to meet the needs of other people. And it looks like you're doing something to, to serve them and you're doing it to, to be kind of good. But actually, it's meeting a need in you because what you really want is approval. And it's that need to be needed. And obviously, if you're repressing emotions, like they, they are actually going to leak out. It tends to come out in kind of like passive-aggressive ways. The fifth one, um, success, like it's the need to win, the need for everyone to think that you're successful and you're strong and you're competent. 
And um, this can cause problems for me and my family because we are all very type five and like success orientated. So at Christmas when we're playing articulate, it can get awkward. But um, I knew it got bad when my sister pulled me aside and said, Anna, you're making Christmas uncomfortable. And I think it might have been because I shouted at my 90-year-old granny. So you should be able to see yourself in the mix somewhere there. Um, But I want to just kind of hold those things in your mind and then add in this thing of individualism, as I was talking about, like where we walk into a room, we think actually our needs are primary. Our, Our decisions are like based and programmed on those needs being met. And that's all well and good, like when those needs are being met. And it might be actually um, you're coming into church and what you're doing is you're wanting to basically be entertained. You're coming to church, coming to a service, coming to a hub, coming to a pattern, whatever it is. And if your needs are being met, like you're like, everything's fine. Okay, I'm going to take, take, take. But what happens is like if we have this kind of consumeristic attitude to community, we end up taking and actually like, what about the person to your left? And what about the person to your right? And I want to invite you, if you're someone who knows that you're coming along to church and your, your, your kind of view of partaking in church is actually just come and sit and receive, it's coming to sit and take, then I just want to encourage you to come and say, actually, like, we really need you. The people around you need you. Like, it, it's not enough to, to just come along on a Sunday. Actually, like, you're needed here. You're needed because the people around you need your prayers. They need you to stand alongside them. You're needed in community. And um, and one of the, the I just gave you an insight. One of the problems that that can happen um, when we feel like our needs aren't being met, and um, that can, that can kind of lead to you saw it carnage. Um, but basically, when we uh, when we feel like our needs aren't being met, or other people's needs are kind of like almost seen as competition to our needs that um that that if they're receiving attention well then i'm not going to be receiving attention if they're being celebrated and and being presented as successful then i'm not being presented as successful and that can lead to to carnage and it happens in every single community and we butt up against each other's needs and you then start to see people as a threat to your needs getting met and it will be manifesting itself in the community. And what will happen is people will start grumbling and people will start leaving church because their needs aren't being met. You'll get annoyed if you're not being challenged because it's not sharpening you enough. You'll get annoyed because it's challenged you too much and you don't feel safe enough. You didn't like the worships because um, the, the songs they played weren't the right songs that get you into the zone and made you didn't, you didn't feel anything. You don't feel seen because the right person hasn't come to speak to you. You're not personally invited for things and therefore you feel excluded. That person gets celebrated and I didn't and therefore like, I feel like a failure. And all the time that we're so self-obsessed and self-absorbed and consumed in getting our needs met in a community, like we don't see the people around us. We don't actually become um, a community that combats isolation. We end up making ourselves feel isolated and the people next to us feel isolated. So the question is, like, you know, this all sounds very depressing, Hannah. Like, is there any hope? Like, is there any actual hope in this? Yes, there is. And the vision is, as it always is, the vision is Jesus, obsessively, dangerously, and undeniably Jesus. It's the vision of love that Jesus paints, the vision of love that Jesus demonstrates that forms and shapes us. And that's the way we're going to recapture a vision of love by actually looking to Jesus, the vision, as the person that's going to help form and shape us by showing us a different way. 
And I'm not going to read this out, but one, I encourage you to read 1 John 4, where it describes what love actually is. And where we would be taught that actually you love the things that make you feel needed. You love the communities that make you feel like your, um, your needs are being met and make you feel good. This is what the Bible says that love is. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sacrificed for us. And then he invites us into that same way of life. This is love, not that we are loved by community, but that we love and sacrifice for one another. And it's when we start doing that, the, the, the love of God gets made manifest. It gets demonstrated right in front of people. And Romans 12 um, goes into to describing what love looks like. Again, it's love in action. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourselves, putting other people's needs above your needs. Like so being a part of their story that actually you rejoice with those who rejoice, you mourn with those who mourn, and you live in harmony with one another. And I have to say, when I was preparing this talk, I felt deeply intimidated. Because what I realize what I'm pushing into here is stuff that we're absolutely soaked and drenched in. Like it's just part of our everyday life. It's part of what we live and what we breathe. It's so normal to us. And worse is that we think it's the only way to live. I was actually just talking to someone at the, the last service. And she currently lives in West Africa. And she said that when she was coming back to England, her heart was absolutely broken by the, um, by the types of community that she was witnessing. She, was, she was, said she was grieving and crying over the anxiety and the way in which people were living. And I don't believe that one talk is just going to magically solve everything. We're suddenly going to walk out of this room and start suddenly um, just changing our mindset and living in a different way. But I do hope that in some way we allow the Spirit of God to get in and start breathing into us his prophetic imagination to believe that another way actually is possible. And for those of you who are already pushing against this and already woken up to this and saying, like, I want to be a part of a different type of community, I just say, keep going. It is worth striving for. It's worth fighting for. And it's costly and it's sacrifice, but keep going. And it doesn't mean that um, in this community, in this kind of like vision of community where the collective needs are actually valued above our needs, it doesn't mean that your needs don't matter or aren't significant. Because when you're in a community that's learning to look out for one another, you actually find that your needs are more than amply met. And I just want to ask you, like, who are you drawing alongside at the moment? Whose arms are you lifting up at the moment? Who are you carrying in prayer before God in remembrance to, um, to God for them? Whose story are you making your own? Because you're alongside praying for them, that when they get that victory, when they get that breakthrough, you're going to rejoice as if it's your victory. And when they go through stuff, you're going to grieve as if it's your grief. And just before I go on further and look at like how we allow people to contend for us, I just want to pause for a moment. Because um, if I was sat where you're sat and, and not the one delivering the talk, I think what I would be, because I get so impassioned by what church could be, and I get so kind of um, excited by it, I can tend to like get also quite judgmental of like, oh, the church should be like this. The church shouldn't be like this. And all of that stuff starts, my grievances of where the church has failed start rising up. And what we've got to be careful of when, when we experience that is that we're actually not in danger, that we're not in danger of making an idol of our vision of church. Like I very deliberately said earlier that the vision of, isn't like some idealized community, but actually the vision is Jesus and his way of love. 
And Bonhoeffer puts it like this, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Those who dream of an idealized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. When they enter the community of Christians, they with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. So first they become accusers of other Christians in the community and then accusers of God. I just want to encourage you, like, don't slip into this. What we don't want to become is people who have an idealized view of community and say, like, and, and then are constantly disappointed with it and constantly angry and bitter towards the people around us. Because what's going to happen is when we have an idealized view of community, we miss the people who are actually sat next to us, who are um, to our left and to our right. So that's contending for others. And then what about allowing people to contend for us? Now, this is like, surely this is the easy bit, the warm, fuzzy bit where we get to go and receive something. And when I was researching this stuff, what I found really strange was that you'd think in a community, in a culture which is obsessed with our needs, that we'd actually become people who are really good at asking for help. But the reality is the opposite is true. Um, we are we idolize independence. We idolize someone who's strong enough to do it out on their own, who can who doesn't need any help from anyone. And I was listening as I was driving to um, yesterday to like a random playlist on um, Spotify, and this song came on. It was like me, myself, and I, not the Beyonce classic, but it was another song. And um, some of the lines in it were just like oh gosh, deeply distressing. It was like, I don't need to hold anyone's hand. I've got a companion in me until I die. And even when it's cold at night, I've got me. I was like, how depressing is that? Like, it's terrifying. But we're taught that it's actually shameful and weak to ask for help. That's what we're taught. That's why we're kind of programmed to think that it's shameful and weak to ask for help. And when I first read that, I genuinely gasped because I thought, oh my gosh, other people feel that too. Because for me, like the worst thing is to actually ask for help because I would begin to feel like a failure. And this is another way in which we've caught the sickness of the city. Like I so often hear really mature Christians saying, actually, like I'm taking a break from church. Or like um, isolating themselves from a community because they think that they can do it on their own. And like I've definitely been guilty at times of kind of spiritualizing my lack of asking for other people for help because actually I thought I was better than other people because actually all I needed was Jesus. But actually Jesus gives us his community for a reason. And if that was the case, then why does Hebrews say that do not give up meeting one another with one another as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another? The church is both an end and a means of grace. It's an end because we get to experience the grace of restored fellowship with man, that we get saved from our isolation. Like when we're in the new heaven, when we're in the new creation, we will be in perfect unity and in perfect oneness. And we get a taste of that in the church community. That's what we get to chase. That's like kind of the grace that we get to experience, that we're not alone, that we don't have to do this on our own, that we're freed up to be with one another. But also by experiencing life together, it's also a way in which we experience grace. It's a means of grace, a way of getting us towards the end because the church is the body of Christ. Let me explain that a little bit more. In, um, he- in Hebrews, the word encouraging is this word in Greek, and I'm not going to try it. I attempted it at the 4.30. I'm not going to try it on you. 
But it basically means to, to come alongside one another and to call out to one another. Essentially, it means to come alongside to one another and give each other encouragement and urge each other forward to sit. It's kind of that image of like Aaron standing along Moses, outside Moses and saying, like, you can do this. I'm going to stand alongside you. I'm going to urge you forward that we're going to get there. But it's also very similar to the Greek word which is used about the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. And the Holy Spirit is called, described as an encourager. And when you allow someone to draw alongside you, you're basically allowing them to, um, to be, to, uh, that you're allowing them to be a way in which the Spirit can minister encouragement to you. When you allow someone to come alongside you, you're allowing them to, to be a minister of the Spirit. So the church is both an end of grace. It's the union that we experience, that like we will experience in the Eucharist, but it's also a means of grace, a way in which God ministers through his people. And when we block other people from coming alongside us and drawing alongside us, what we're actually doing is we're blocking our own healing. And that's like the greatest tragedy of it all. It's just like by pushing people away, we're actually blocking a healing and allowing it to come. And as I said, this is something I find incredibly difficult, letting people help me. And a couple of months ago, I went for a drink with Pete and John. And Pete asked me a really simple question. It was just like, how are you doing? And what you've got to understand for, for this story is um, the context is, like my old counsellor um, once said to me, Anna, you have very sophisticated defence mechanisms. And she needed to follow up with a line, um, I don't mean this as a compliment, because obviously I'd heard the word sophisticated and thought, well, thank you very much. But, you know, if you're going to be bad at something, at least be sophisticated while doing it. So um, as Pete asked me that question, I just started, like, deploying all my defense mechanisms. I was like, do you know what? I'm actually doing really well at the moment. I'm, I'm actually great. Um, I'm really fine. And they're like, oh, okay, are you sure? Like, there's nothing you've got to share. And I was like, it, no, like genuinely, actually, I feel fine. I feel really fine. I'm actually great. And um, then I said, oh, well... But, John, I, like, I genuinely have noticed that you've not been so great recently, so I'd love to hear a little bit about that. And, um, and John said, yeah, yeah, we'll get to me, but just, just for you for a little bit. And I was like, okay. And then Pete said to me, he said, like, if there was one thing that you could share with us, just, like, one thing to describe how you're doing, like, what would it be? And I was like, oh, do you know what? I don't know. I don't know. Um, and then it broke. And the tears came, and I was just like, it's been so long since I allowed someone to ask me that question. Like, I've been blocking my own healing because I was too afraid to let anyone... Like, I couldn't answer the question because I didn't have a clue how I was doing. And because I've been desperately feeling lonely, but actually felt too afraid and too weak and too vulnerable to actually say to people, like, I need you. So I've been blocking every time anyone asks me, like, how are you doing? I'll just bat it away, get them talking about themselves because people love to talk about themselves. So, like, just get them talking about themselves so that I can keep myself defended. But when keeping myself defended, what I was defending against was my own healing. And obviously, like, um, you're not going to... Um, Oh, sorry, I'll just quickly go back to that. Um, there's just two occasions this week um, where someone came up, like, so Neha came up to me, one of our apprentices sat in the front row. Love you, Neha. Um, she came up to me and said, like, I know you're speaking on praying for one another, so, like, can you pray for me? And then also uh, there's a couple in our church um, who are going through some stuff at the moment, and uh, Kath said, like, can we just gather around them and pray for them? And as I was standing alongside and praying for these people, there wasn't for a moment, not even a millisecond did I think, oh, my gosh, they're weak for asking for help not for a single moment and actually for me as someone who was praying for them it was a total and utter privilege 
And what I, I, I struggle to understand is why don't we then see that for ourselves? Like, why do we then think for us, well, it's going to be different for me because people will think I'm weak. Oh, it's going to be an inconvenience for people to pray for me. I counted it as a total and utter privilege to pray for you, Neha. <laughs> so who are you going to unmask to and who are you going to let help you? And obviously it's not going to be in the coffee queue downstairs or like in front of your entire hub, but it might be in the ministry time afterwards. It might be grabbing someone at the end of your hub. It might be in your pattern group. It might be, again, in a coffee shop or a home. When was the last time you actually let people see you? When was the last time you let someone draw alongside you and minister encouragement to you through prayer? Are you in danger of blocking your own healing? And what's a shame is that actually this, when we, when we allow people to, um, to draw alongside us, that very act, that very like, loving thing to do is going to be a visible sign of God's grace amongst this broken world who's desperate for a community. And I want to finish with this. I spent a lot of time talking about like, kind of the community aspect of this talk. But I want to finish by just giving a little bit of attention to that last bit, the power of the Spirit. And one of the most confronting things I've found about this series so far is it's a real challenge to my competence. Because there's lots of things that I, that I could do um, to fix community. There's things I could do like to make it a better community. I could go around and cook for someone. I might write them an encouraging note. I might get them a gift. And all of these things are great things, but there's something different about when we choose to pray for one another. Because there's actually a lot of really nice people on this earth who are doing lovely things for one another and building community. But as Pete said, um, said over the last few weeks, our unique contribution on this earth is going to be the presence of God. That's the only thing that is going to distinguish us from everyone else. And there's something different that happens when we, um, when we pray for one another. The bond of prayer between people when we, they pray for one another, there's something different that happens and you start to see one another differently. It's why Jesus said, like, pray for your enemies, because when you pray for people, your perspective is going to shift. The bonds of friendship go seriously deep when you choose to contend and pray for one another, and it will be visible, as it was at my ordination. And how much more will we see when we, our friendships are founded on prayer and not just us fixing things? Like, what if Moses didn't have Aaron and her next to him in that battle? What happens if they didn't choose to pick up his arms would the battle have been lost? And therefore, like, what battles are we losing because we're not letting people lift up our arms? What battles are the people next to us losing because we're too caught up in our own needs to think about them and hold their arms up? Like, I'm utterly convinced that from this series, the lesson for us is going to be that we don't need to be a more relevant, competent, slick church with all our lovely good ideas, impressive and as important as they are. What this world really needs is a community that understands that the, rev- the revolution begins on our knees in prayer. Like the, the, ri- the revolution against the disorder of isolation in London is going to be because we pray, because we pray for one another, because we contend for one another, and we allow people to do the same thing for us.